Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Nick said, my name's Andrew. Um, I feel like too much attention has been put on me this morning. It really doesn't matter who I am. Um, if you haven't met me, though, I'd love to meet you. I'm generally a pretty friendly person, I think. Uh, I like meeting people. I would love to chat to you. Um, Nick mentioned, like, you know, that our, our church in, in South Belfast, that's going really, really well. Obviously, things were difficult over the pandemic, and it felt a little bit in January this year. We were starting again in some ways. But, um, so do pray for us. Um, we've got some new ministries in the community, and uh, we're developing leadership and all these kind of exciting things that church plants do. Um, and it feels like that we're starting to become a church. Of course, we always were, but that's what it feels like. So do pray for us. Um, pray for Travis, who's our other elder as well, and his wife Lauren and their, uh, I was going to say boys, they also have a girl now as well, so their kids as well. Um, I'm going to pray for us again, because we can't do that too much. And also, anytime we open God's Word, what we tend to do is we tend to read into it what we want it to say. So I'm going to pray that we're careful against that, and actually what we hear is Jesus speaking to us this morning. Does that sound good? And uh, then we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your words. Um, we want to thank you that it is perfect. We want to thank you that it is alive, that it is speaking to us. Lord, uh, would you carry your word to our hearts on the breath of your spirit this morning and give us attentive ears to hear what you have to say in responsive hearts. Help me, Lord, be faithful to you and to these people this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Uh, Psalm 51 
uh, is not like some other psalms in that we know exactly the, the story behind why this psalm was written. And the story goes something like this. There once were two men who lived in the same city. One was a rich man and the other was poor. Now the rich man, he had flocks of sheep, almost said flocks of geese, flocks of sheep. He had herds of cattle. Those were the markers of real wealth in those days. And the poor man, well, he was down and out. He didn't have huge flocks of sheep or herds of cattle. He didn't have a huge bank account or, or some kind of investment portfolio. No, the poor man had absolutely nothing except one little lamb. He had bought this little lamb with his own meager savings. And he loved the lamb. He had raised it as one of his own kids. The, 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 the lamb ate the food from his table. It drank from his own cup. It even slept in his bed like the way we might do with a puppy. This lamb was like a daughter to him. And it happened that one day a traveler was passing through the town, through that city. And the traveler stopped at the rich man's house. And according to the custom, you had to care for weary travelers. This traveler was dusty, he was hot, he was weary. He was probably a bit sunburnt and exposed from, from traveling in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Now, the rich man was far too stingy to take an animal from his own huge herds or his own huge flocks and make a meal for his visitors. So what he did was he stole the poor man's beloved lamb and killed it and made a feast for the traveler. And this story is actually a parable that the prophet Nathan told to David, who was the king of Israel. And of course, just like we all do whenever we, we hear that story, David was, was outraged by the injustice of it. How can this man do this? He has hundreds of sheep. It would have cost him literally nothing to, to take one lamb and make some food for this traveler. David was so outraged by the unfairness of this story that he demanded to find this man and have him executed. But the irony is that the injustice in this parable was absolutely nothing compared to the injustice that David himself had done in his own life. You see, David, the king of Israel, had sent armies into battle, but he chose to stay at home. Instead of being a courageous, good king and leading his armies from the front, he chose to stay in the safety and comfort and luxury of his own palace. And his army was led by his friend, a man called Uriah. And when Uriah was off fighting David's war, David saw Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. And in a moment of uncontrolled lust, he sent for her and committed adultery with her. And she got pregnant. So then David decides he can cover this up. So what does he do? He sends for Uriah at the front lines. He says, Uriah, you've got to come home. Because he thinks, well, if he can, if he can uh, bring Uriah home to his wife, then Uriah will, will, will assume that the baby is his. So Uriah comes back from the front line. But Uriah is too much of a good, loyal servant to do it as David asks. He says, no, I need to be with my comrades. They're in a battle. 
In some ways, he's doing what David should have done himself. So David says, I know, I'll write a letter to, the, to the, one of the commanders. And so he, gives this, he writes a letter, seals it up, and gives it to Uriah and says, take this to the front line. And inside that letter are instructions to put Uriah on the front line, then for the army to fall back so that Uriah would be killed and the secret would be covered up forever. So let me put this bluntly. David, who's the king of Israel, commits adultery with his friend's wife, gets her pregnant, and then has him killed to cover it up. And so almost a year later, God sends the prophet Nathan, who who were the people to speak God's word in those days, and he confronts David with his sin through the parable of the rich man and the poor man and the traveler. And David, when he realizes, when he's confronted with the depth of his own sin, what does he say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. I have sinned against the Lord, Second Samuel records him saying. Now I wonder, what do we do when we're confronted with our own sin? What do we do when we're confronted with our own guilt? Maybe, maybe you're new to church, maybe you've, this is your first time and you've never, you don't really think in terms of sin, but you probably do think, of, you probably do think in terms of things that you've done wrong. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you hurt people and betray people? Now, this psalm isn't just about David getting his guilt off his chest, right? This isn't some cathartic experience where he, he's just trying to, you know, say, oh yes, I need to get all this off my chest so I can breathe out and, and be okay with myself and move on. This psalm is, is, is written for us too. This psalm is in Scripture to show us our situation before God. In fact, David tells us this in verse 13. He says that that he's going through this journey so that he can teach sinners your ways, so that he can teach us, he can teach other people to return to God just as he is doing. You see, this psalm isn't just about David's own sin. This psalm is given to us by God to show us that we are guilty and we need to repent. Oh, great. Nice cheery subject for a summer morning. You know, uh, one of the things that annoys me about politics in Northern Ireland, <laughs> big, all right, okay, bear with me, I'm not going to go deep, but what I hate most of all about politics in Northern Ireland is whataboutery. You know this phrase, whataboutery? So one political party would be like, yeah, but what about those guys over there? And then the TV cameras will go to these guys and they're like, yeah, but what about that party over there? What are they doing? Whataboutery. But actually, we all love a bit of whataboutery, don't we? What about her? Have you seen the state of her life? I'm not living like that. What about him? Do you know what he's downloaded on his computer? There's no way I'm as bad as him. Or maybe when we see someone who's supposed to be a good king and protect and lead his people who commits adultery and has people murdered. Actually, the things David does, I was thinking about this, I'd be like, this would make a really good true crime podcast that I would totally listen to. conspiracy, murder, adultery. I'd be like, yo, I'd be totally into that. Surely you can't be saying that I'm as bad as David. I haven't done anything like that. And yet, from the pen 
of a man who knows not only the depth of his own sin, but also the depth of God's covenant love comes a prayer song of repentance that teaches us not only how to repent, but that we need to repent. You see, repentance isn't just part of the Christian experience. It's completely fundamental to the Christian life. It's completely fundamental to Christianity. Now, none of us like to repent, do we? Right? I suppose it's just in our nature. We hate saying sorry. Maybe I'm the only one, but I imagine that at least any man in the room who's married <laughs> will hate saying sorry. Nobody had to teach our kids to hate saying sorry either. But sometimes when they hurt each other or, or do something wrong, it's like pulling teeth trying to get them to apologize. And then when they do, it's like, sorry. You know, they, they don't mean it. Sorry. <laughs> like, we hate repentance. But repentance is at the very heart of the gospel. Repentance is at the very heart of the good news of Jesus because repentance and grace go hand in hand. When we repent, we receive as flood of God's grace. There can be no Christianity without repentance. It is central to Christianity. Now, and we don't, we don't really like to think about repentance too much or sin. We like to think of sinners being like David, the adulterers and the murderers, or, or maybe the, the rapists and abusers and dictators and criminals. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned, that we've all turned away from God. Elsewhere in the Psalms, it even tells us that there is no one who is good, not even one. We prefer to not talk about these things, though. We love to tell our friends, you know, Jesus loves you. Oh, Jesus loves you. We talk about his grace and his love. But, but in actual fact, if there's no sin, there's no grace. God's love is so amazing because our sin is so terrible. This is the power of this psalm. We see this in Jesus' ministry. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to clean ourselves up, did he? He didn't come to tell us how to work our way up to heaven. He came to seek and save the lost. He came into the world to save sinners. In fact, all the way through the Gospels, sinners are the only type of people that Jesus forgives, Right? You see this, Jesus only redeems people who recognize their own sinfulness, and the people who don't, we think of maybe the, the rich young ruler, the rich young man, he has everything. He says, well, what should I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, you need to sell, you need to get over your idol of money and possession, sell what you have and give it to the poor. And he says, no. In fact, Jesus' first words in his public ministry, uh, Mark, the uh, gospel writer Mark records his first words as, Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is at the heart of the gospel. And repentance isn't just turning away from your own sin. It's actually turning towards God, right? It's not just feeling sorry. It's easy to feel sorry. Yesterday, I was up at my mom's, and she still lives in the house where I grew up. And uh, when I go there, you know, I'm just out and about trimming the hedges and doing stuff for her. And, and, but every time I go there, I, you know, you get all the memories come back. And yesterday, I was thinking about uh, how my dad had told me not to kick the football against this wall. Um, and I did it anyway, and it was right underneath their bedroom window, and I smashed the bedroom window, and I was just, uh, I didn't try to hide it. Well, I couldn't, because... 
they saw me do it. And uh, I was just overcome with like guilt. I was like, oh, I feel so bad. I feel like, but that's not even repentance. Being, being overcome with guilt, being, over, being overcome with feeling sorry for what you've done isn't necessarily repentance. Repentance is, is being convicted and then changing your direction. We can just be consumed with guilt. We can, we, oh, I feel so bad, look at what I've done. And it, also be, it almost becomes like a self-worshipful kind of thing. Oh, look how bad I am. But repentance is not just feeling sorry, it's being convicted, being inwardly humbled, and then outwardly changed. It's a directional change from your life of sin to God. And the amazing thing is that it's only when we see the depth of our sin that we can see the height of his grace. Listen, we're going to, I know I've been talking about this for a while. We're going to get into the psalm right now. Before I do, I want to say this. If you go away this morning and only feel the weight of your sin and don't feel or see the depth of his grace, then I've done my job wrong and you need to come and tell me that. One of my favorite ever pastors and Christian writers um, is uh, a man called Richard Sibbs, and he wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, and that's actually a quote from Isaiah. And in this book, he has the most beautiful sentence ever written in the English language, and it says this, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in me. That's what I want us to experience this morning. That's what David wants us to experience. That's what God has for us this morning. So as we unfold this psalm, we see uh, David walking through a journey of repentance. He's confronted with his sin, and then he begins this journey of repentance. And the first step of that journey is that he recognizes that, or is that repentance recognizes that sin is against God. That's the first step. Repentance recognizes that sin is against God. Maybe can we just put up the, the, next, the passage of Scripture, the first four verses We'll keep those on the screen for a second. See, here's David faced with what he has done. Adultery, murder, cover-up. But David's confession to God is as surprising, I think, as it is intense. Because what does he say? He says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, why does he say this? Like, why is he saying, against you and you only have I sinned? How can he say this when he's actually cheated on and killed his friend? I don't think that he says this because he doesn't recognize that he's hurt people. He clearly recognizes this. He even says later on in verse 14 that he is blood guilty. He talks about blood guiltiness. This is an old way of saying that that he's confessing to bodily harm. He's literally, I think, confessing to murder here. And so he does recognize that he has sinned against people. So why does he confess that he has sinned against God alone? Well, you see, David realizes that all sin is first and foremost against God. All sin. Sin is treason. So if you go out tomorrow and you decide, I'm going to overthrow the government. <laughs> I'm, going to take over, I'm going to overthrow, start a coup and overthrow this, this country. Well, to do that, to reach that end, you're probably going to hurt a lot of people and kill a lot of people on the way, cause a lot of damage, uh, destroy a lot of property, all that kind of thing. And, and when you're caught, you won't be charged with the individual crimes of killing that person, that person, destroying that building, whatever. You will be tri- tried or charged with the chief crime of treason. Not for what you have done against individuals, but what you have done against the state, against your country, okay? Why? 
Because this is the country that has provided you with resources and a home, with a job and a healthcare and a community, whatever it is. You have betrayed the very thing that you belong to. In the same way, every sin is like treason against God. Sin is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. It's not just adultery and murder that separate us from God. Every sin is treason against our Creator. You see how this works? Let me give you another analogy. Um, One of the rules in our family is that we are kind to one another and we look after one another. I guess that's two rules, but kind and look after each other is one of the rules. Uh, And so if if Finley, my poor kids, (laughs) they get talked about a lot when I preach, uh, but they're not here, so I don't care. Someday they'll complain to me, but maybe not today. Um, But so say uh, Finley hits his sister, which he rarely does, right? He hasn't just hurt his sister, he has broken the rules of our family. He He has gone against the things that we have put in place to make our family flourish and thrive. And so, in that, if you want to use a sin language, he hasn't just sinned against his sister and caused her harm. He has actually sinned against our family. He has, he has broken our values. He has betrayed our family. In the same way, when we sin against others, we are ultimately sinning against God. So we need to see that every sin is, is always first and foremost against God. Every sin you've ever committed is, is, is because you have valued your own values over God. You've loved something else more than God. That's why David says his sin is against God alone. He even says that God is right to judge me. You're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, he says. What David is really saying, he's like, yes, I, I committed adultery with Bathsheba, but the first sin of, of adultery was actually the adultery in his heart against God. He, he, he didn't go from zero to murder, right? There were steps that way, and, and sin rarely, rarely happens, you know, from zero to big thing. It's usually a, a slope, steps. Think about it. What if David, when he saw Bathsheba, Uh, Bathsheba, bathing, what if at that moment he had stopped and repented of his lust? Said, Lord, cleanse my heart. I'm sinful. Or what if even before that, if he had repented of his self-interest before he sent the army off into battle and just to protect himself and stay at home in comfort and luxury? Lord, I've betrayed my responsibility as king. I'm full of self-interest. His first sin was in his heart against God. And this is the situation that we all find ourselves in every time we sin. Every sin. It doesn't matter if you're not a believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian. We're all the same, Christians and non-Christians. We all have sinned. Every sin of our entire lives is against the holy God. So what are we to do? What happens when we recognize our sin is against the holy and just God? Well, here's what I want us to notice, how grace is woven into this journey of repentance from the very beginning. Verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. See, he's pleading to God for mercy on the basis of God's own promises. 
He says, according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love is just the Bible's way of talking about God's love, which is unbreakable. Unfailing, I think, is almost a better way of putting it. Unfailing love. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will always love you. And when God makes this covenant, it can't ever be broken. God's love never fails. Even when we do the worst things imaginable, when you think those things about your, your brother or sister, when you say those things, when you betray people, when you, whatever it may be in your situation, the worst things imaginable, if you are in Jesus, you say, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. You've covenanted that to me. And this comes out of relationship with God. David isn't, David isn't appealing to God's steadfast love to try and gain relationship with God. His repentance comes out of his relationship with God. He's already in covenant relationship with God. As God's people, confession isn't an attempt to gain a relationship with God. Rather, confession arises out of our relationship with God. We repent because we are secure in him. It's because we are united with Christ that we can confess our sin. Do you, see, do you see how God's grace is revealed to us when we sin or when we repent? There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in me. And when we experience his grace upon grace upon grace, when we recognize our sin and throw ourselves on his mercy, what happens? We are overwhelmed by this flood of his grace that comes flowing over us. The amazing thing is that, yes, repentance recognizes that our sin is against God, but actually repentance also reveals that his grace is toward us. Isn't that incredible? The mercy and grace and love of God. That's the first step of his journey. The second step of of this repentance journey is that repentance remembers our sinful nature. We see this in verses 5 to 9. Here David moves from not just recognizing his own sinful actions, but there's something happens here because he is faced with these sinful actions. Oh my goodness, I have done all this stuff. I've sinned against God. But that leads him to remember, actually, these sinful actions have come out of my sinful nature. I'm doing these things because of who I am in my very being. You see, he knows that there has never been a time when he wasn't sinful. What does he say? He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. Now, this isn't saying that a wee baby will do horrible things. I was kind of hoping that Pippa would still be here for this analogy, but that's okay. Wee baby, three weeks old, that's not going to say that she's going to be doing terrible things, but what this is saying, that we are all born with a sinful nature, and left unchecked, this sinful nature will always lead to sinful actions. This is what we call total depravity. And it doesn't mean that human beings are incapable of good things. Of course, we're made in the image of God. We're capable of compassion, generosity, charity, great things, love. But what total depravity does means, what being born with a sinful nature does mean, is that given the choice to do God's will or our own thing, we will 100% of the time choose our own thing. We will always choose our own way outside of Jesus, born in sin. Now, this might sound shocking to you or even unfair to you, but let's look at the evidence because we don't have to look very far to see that it's true. 
Nobody has to teach a toddler to be naughty, right? Apart from maybe mama and dada, what's the first word kids you learn? No, mine. <laughs> well, that's the worst when your kid's like, mine. It's not, I bought it, it's mine actually. Don't argue. <laughs> kids love to disobey and push the boundaries. Sinful nature, rebellion is in our hearts. And you've probably felt this in yourself too. Even, even, if, even as Christians, right? Have you ever, or do you ever, keep messing up in the same way over and over and over again? I, re- I reckon, you know, there's, for me, there's a few different things in my life where it's like, why am I doing this again and again? Maybe, maybe if you sin in a certain way and afterwards you're full of guilt and regret and maybe you actually do genuinely repent. But before long, you've somehow managed to sin in the same way again and you're like, what's going on? Stuck in this circle of sin, it's like so ingrained into me that no matter how hard I try, I just can't get rid of it. That's sinful nature, okay? We battle against the flesh within us. And maybe that sounds familiar to you. Well, here's how God's amazing grace is revealed to us when we remember our sinful nature. What does David do when he, he, he says, I have this sinful nature, and that's why I've sinned against you, God. I was born in sin. What does he do? He pleads with God to cleanse him. He says, purge me, Lord. Wash me. And in repentance, when we remember our sinful nature and confess to him, God answers our prayers to be cleansed. I I can't honestly sometimes believe this, that God cleanses me. Um, During lockdown, um, I read the Chronicles of Narnia with, with Finley. Um, it was great. Um, every night a bit before bed, and he'd be like, why are you crying? I'm like, I love Jesus so much. Um, and one of the most powerful moments in those books is in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of the, I think, I don't know what, where it is in the series, but this is about uh, the kids going on this ship on this voyage. Uh, obviously, it's called the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, and uh, in the story, there is a selfish boy called Eustace. And Eustace gets pulled into Narnia with Lucy. And, Luce, and Eustace is not a nice person. He's selfish. He's greedy. He lies. He even steals. He, he, he's out for his own gain. And he loves his treasures more than anything else. And he, he finds this gold bracelet and he puts it on his arm, this gold ring. And, and one night he falls asleep with it on his arm. He's so happy to have it. And he's transformed into a dragon. He kind of becomes this outward manifestation of what's really going on in his heart. And of course then, all the people don't recognize him and so they drive this scary monster away. And eventually, Eustace is so overcome with loneliness, he realizes actually, I I can't be without these people. And so he begins to cry. And then Aslan... The, the, the lion, the great lion, the Jesus figure in the story arrives, and he offers to help Eustace uh, to remove the dragon scales, remove his dragonness. And Eustace obviously refuses, and he tries himself three times to, to, to get this skin off, and he has some success, but, but he just can't do it fully. It won't leave him. He's trying so hard. And finally, in desperation, he gives up, and he says, okay, Aslan, you've got to help me here. Please take off my dragon skin. 
And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. This is Eustace's words. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. I'm going to cry again because that's what I do when I read these books. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. And I didn't like that very much because I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing around, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. To repent is to be de-dragoned and to be cleansed and clothed in righteousness. In repentance, Jesus removes our sin. He removes our dragon scales. He removes our sinful nature. In repentance, we're not asking God to do something that he isn't unwilling to do. In the story, Aslan comes to him and says, I'm willing to cleanse you here. It was Eustace who wanted to do things his own way. God stands ready to forgive. If you or just considering Christianity, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, can I just tell you, as you consider all the things in your life that you wish you'd never done, God stands ready to forgive. He loves you. In repentance, all we're doing is asking God to do what he has promised to do for us. And then when God washes us with his grace, we become more pure than snow. He blots out our iniquities. That's what David says in the psalm. He blots out our iniquities in verse 9. That literally means it's like tipex in the record book. It's like scoring them out. They're removed. You see, repentance might seem hard, but repentance, repentance is itself a grace. You see this? We don't, we don't want to repent. We want to, okay, I can maybe clean myself up a little bit, or that's going to be too sore, that's going to be too hard, but it's a grace in itself. When David repented, Nathan comes to David, and David repents, I have sinned against you and you alone, O God. Well, God God comes to David as unexpectedly as David came to Bathsheba, but his encounter led to death. But what happens when David, when God encounters David? It leads to life. That's how he always works. And it's not painless. (laughs) Anyone who's been a Christian for a long time will tell you that it hurts to have your dragon scales removed. (laughs) David even says that in verse 8 that it's God who has broken his bones. Let the bones that you have broken. But notice what happens. When we repent, God's grace rushes in and the bones don't just heal, they dance. They rejoice. Listen, uh, if you feel like you can't ever change, and I feel like that a lot, by the way, maybe there's just that one thing that you can't seem to get rid of like this gold bracelet that's 
grown into your arm. Well, maybe it's time to just stop trying to do things yourself. Just confess. Let God change you. Repent and let his grace flood in. This is actually the next step of the repentance journey. Repentance realizes our need for renewal. Repentance realizes our need for renewal. We see this in verses 10 to 13. You see, the journey of repentance has led David from recognizing uh, that his sin is against God and, and then seeing that actually his sin is actually be, uh, his sinful nature. And this leads him to realize, well, then I need a new nature. <laughs> if, my, if, I'm nature if I'm sinful in my nature, then I need a new nature. And this is what he prays for in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this word, uh, this Hebrew word here, renew, it, it just means renovate. That's, that's what renovate means. It means renew, okay? Um, so any grand design fans in the room, right? No, you're all looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Thanks, Maria. We, we like a bit of grand designs. It's just very relaxing TV. Um, and I like how Kevin McLeod's always a bit judgmental at the start. This will never work. And then at the end, he's like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And they always have babies. Don't know why. Um, we were watching one a couple of weeks ago, and it was this old mill in Cornwall. And this couple had bought this old mill. And it was a listed building that need preserved. And, uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, this will be great. We'll live in an old mill. It'll be fantastic. And then they go in, and they realize that, uh-uh, we can't just fix this place up with some plaster on the walls and like a paint. It needed completely gutted and repaired. That the, the mortar was, was crumbling. All the, the wood beams, like the rafters and the joists, it, they were all rotten. It needed completely gutted. And, and, and actually what they were left with was just a shell. And then they had to start and dig out floors, and rebuild things. And it's the same with our sinful hearts. We, we need complete renovation, don't we? Of course, what we do is we try to paper over the cracks and, um, and maybe you can do that for a while. Maybe you're pretty handy and you can actually plaster a wall. Some of us are pretty good at hiding stuff. But that kind of house isn't a suitable dwelling place for the God of heaven. And he says, I want to come and live in you. <laughs> He's not going to live in a house that's just been painted over and papered over the cracks. We need complete renovation. And in Jesus praise his name, this is what we get. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, it's God who makes us new through Jesus, right? It's only God can do this. And, and David, when he prays in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. The word in the original language is this, it's a really strong word and it means something that only God can do. You can't use the word create unless God is doing it. David understands that he can do absolutely nothing in himself to make himself new. And he says, God, only you can do this. Create in me. All we can do is maybe stick some paint up, maybe change the odd light bulb here and there. But if we want real change, if we want to be made new, we have to have a complete heart renovation. We have to let God do it. I, I do think as Christians, one of the most frequent 
prayers should be creating me a clean heart. Imagine we live that way as, as, as believers, right? Imagine as following Jesus, we, we just pray that continually, creating me a clean heart with God. You see, this is the way it should be because when a person is made new in Jesus, repentance actually becomes part of our new lives. Repentance isn't just something you do once and then you're a Christian and happy days and never repent again. Nor is it something you kind of get better at and then graduate out of, okay? It's not something that you grow in maturity and then reach a level of goodness and then you don't need to repent anymore. Like I've got to like, you know, I've completed Christianity. <laughs> you know, I'm like done. Oh yeah, don't need to repent anymore. No. Um, someone once told me, and I can't remember who and I wish I could, so if anyone has heard this before, please tell me, the circle of repentance. And maybe I just made it up, in which case, you know, you're welcome. But um, put, can we put it on the screen, the circle of repentance? It actually, I realized when I did this, it looks a bit like the James Bond opening thing, but... Um, bear with me. The white circle, let's take the small one to begin with. The white circle, that's our maturity in Jesus, our Christian life, our experience of Jesus. And the green border is our repentance. So as the circle gets bigger, as we grow, what happens to the green border? It also has to get bigger. This is our repentance as Christians. As we mature in Christ, we'll realize that we're not repenting less or we've got less stuff to repent of. We'll realize that we're repenting more. Growing in maturity is growing in our need for God's grace. We don't ever graduate out of it. And I actually think that when we get to the new creation, when we're in heaven, we won't stop needing his grace. We'll just be even more in awe of it. I'm only here because of God's grace. We don't graduate out of our need for grace. We don't gradually grow out of our, our, our needs for repentance. We, we grow, as we grow, we grow in our dependence on God's grace. As we get to know Jesus more, the more we will see our need for his grace and the more we will be constantly repenting. I really need to speed up here. Part of this repentant life is why David... Um, in verse 13, commits to teaching others how to repent. Because this is, this is what we do, isn't it? As we depend on grace, we lead others to depend on grace. The most mature Christians are the ones who are the most repentant. They're the ones who have experienced God's grace and mercy more than others. And through repentance, we become these experts in God's grace. And this is why one of our core values as a church is, is spiritual honesty and authenticity. Listen, we want our church to be a family where it's safe to confess even the worst things to one another. We're actually, that's encouraged. Because we're all sinners saved by grace, right? That's what we are. By definition, the church family is a group of people who are saved by grace. We don't, we don't have to and we can't pretend to be any better than anyone else. So you don't have to have it all together to be part of our church. None of us have it all together. We're all just relying on Jesus. This is how the church is built up. And I'll make this point and then I want to move on to my last point. Look at verse 18. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. In our age, post-Jesus, we read these things as the church. He is talking about the church. The church will become stronger if we have a culture of confession and repentance and leading each other to rely on God's grace. When confession is met with not judgment, 
but with grace. Yeah, I'm a sinner too. Let's repent together. In repentance, we just realize our need for renewal and we turn to God for that saving work and then we continually walk in that renewal by constantly repenting and confessing and being flooded over by God's grace. You see how that works? Finally then, the last step in the repentance journey. Repentance is recognizing that our sin is against God. It's, it's, it's remembering that we have this sinful nature. It's realizing our need for renewal. But it's also re- repentance releases us to worship in brokenness. Releases us to worship in brokenness. We see this in verses 14 to 19, the very end of the, the psalm. You see what's happening here? David has, has gone from recognizing that his sin is against God um, to see in a sinful nature, to be made new, and then his lips are opened to praise God. It's kind of like before repentance. Yes, thank you, it's on the screen. It's kind of like before repentance, he can't praise God. But when he repents, God's grace comes rushing in, and suddenly he is freely able to sing and praise God because of God's goodness and mercy and grace. Tim Keller, uh, who is a pastor in New York, and when he's writing about these verses, he calls this the eloquence of brokenness. The eloquence of brokenness. Isn't that incredible? I love this. And here's what it means. It means if we are trying to fix ourselves up, if we're trying to make ourselves clean, if we're wallpapering over the cracks or, um, you know, painting, you know, rusty things or whatever, I lost my analogy there, but you know what I'm saying. Then our worship isn't true. It would be like offering sacrifices in the Old Testament times without actually considering what they mean. But when we repent, when we say, God, I am broken, God, I am sinful, I have sinned against you, I have a sinful nature, I need to be made new. When we do that, we can worship God in our brokenness. This is the eloquence of brokenness. God opens our hearts. We simply just say, Lord, I am such a sinner, but you are such a savior. A broken and contrite heart is the posture of a Christian. Notice he says, it's funny because he says, on one hand he says, you don't delight in sacrifices. What you delight in is a broken, contrite heart. But then he says in verse 19, then, you will, then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. God doesn't delight in our worship when it's fake. Now, God delights in, in, in us a broken and contrite heart. That's not saying that God wants us to be miserable. He wants us to be joyful. But what this does mean is that when we realize our sinfulness, his grace comes rushing and our lips are opened. Now, this might sound frightening, okay? And it is a frightening, maybe a scary step to take to to just say, God, I am broken, I am sinful, even to confess not to one another. But it's only frightening until we realize that the one before whom we are broken is the one who was broken for us. When we repent, we're not falling into a pit of despair. We're falling into an ocean of God's grace. This summer, we've been teaching our kids in the sea how, how to just kind of float in the water, right? And, uh, you know, because if you've ever been swimming in the sea, you'll know that if you struggle and, cry, you struggle and swim against the waves, uh, it, it's actually exhausting. It's exhausting. But what happens when you lie back? 
you realize that the water holds you up. Guys, that's God's grace. We're struggling to make ourselves better. We're struggling to, to try and be a good Christian. I literally had someone texting me last night saying, I feel like such a terrible Christian. This is what we do. We're scrambling to, to, to try and make ourselves better, racked with guilt. And God says, simply just lie back and realize that my, my, my grace is holding you up. I don't know. But I, I suppose the older I get and the more people I talk to, I realize that most people's Christian experiences, it feels like we're, we're we're holding on to a cliff edge by our fingertips or that we're struggling to try and keep our head above water. But we're not holding on by our fingertips. We let go and we realize that our feet is on solid ground. We stop struggling the water. We lie back and we realize that his grace is holding us up. God just says to us, child, stop struggling. Just rest in me. And then true worship comes from a heart that has been broken in repentance because only a heart that has been broken in repentance knows God's grace. Do you know what true worship sounds like? True worship sounds like that sentence. I am such a sinner, but you are such a savior. That's what true worship sounds like. That's all of us have. Uh, can, can Can you permit me to say one more thing? I know I've gone long, but here we go. You can't stop me, so. Um, there was one bit of the story that I left out at the start because immediately after David says I repent like you know I've sinned against the Lord you know what Nathan says Nathan says to David the Lord has put away your sin what <laughs> Nathan he, he, he did terrible things he committed murder what kind of God puts away Adultery and murder, surely a righteous God would want to to see the penalty paid for those terrible things. How can a perfectly just God not make David pay for his sin? How can a perfectly just God not make me pay for my sin? Well, here's how Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. You see, Jesus was perfect in his life, first and foremost. He didn't look on women as something to to be a, a product to be consumed or something to be taken. When he meets that woman at the well in John chapter 4, he he looked on her and he sees a person in need of grace. Jesus didn't give in to his desires. Instead, he took on the wrath of God so that we could be free. God puts away our sins because he laid them on Jesus on the cross. Justice is done, but it's done at the expense of Jesus, not at our expense. Isn't that amazing? Such a savior. Jesus didn't send his friend to the front line of the the, the battle to have him killed. Jesus steps into the breach on the front line and says, kill me, not them. He died so we can live. So you know what this means? This means that, that, that we can pray this psalm in Jesus because of Jesus, knowing that we are forgiven. Like David, we can confess that we have sinned against God. Yes, we have. But in Jesus, God has blotted out our transgressions. God has cleansed us from sin. God has made us whiter than snow. And God has made us new creations. If you are in Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection are proof to you that his covenant love will never, ever fail you. Just like John reminded us to start from Romans 8. And if you're not a Christian... Boy, that, 
that, that covenantal love is, is available to you. That forgiveness is available to you. What do you do? You just let go. I'm a sinner. I let go. I rely on you, Jesus. Please do that. As we come to uh, the table this morning in just a second, um, I want just to invite us as, as we get ready to worship, I want us to just invite us all to take a second. Uh, just maybe in, in silence and quietness and just in your own heart. Uh, just a second to just fall back into the ocean of his grace. Mm. Maybe there's one thing that you're, you know, that the Lord is convicting you of that you need to repent of. That's great. The Holy Spirit is working. Maybe you need to repent of a lack of repentance in your life. I know I do. Let's take a moment just to remember his love, close your eyes, and just fall back into the ocean of his grace. Hear him saying to you that he has put away your sin. And just say in your own heart, Lord, I am such a sinner, but you are such a savior. This is the basis that any of us stand on. Come, Holy Spirit, let's just be quiet for a second. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for the ocean of your grace that we all swim in. Father, I pray, especially right now, for anybody that is weary, anyone that's tired, anybody that's struggling, any, anybody that can hear my voice that is just um, fed up with trying to make themselves better and just feeling over and over and over again. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would just convict us to repent and confess and receive the flood of your grace. Father, thank you that you have blotted out our sins in Jesus. Thank you that the truth is that, that when you see us, you see the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you that we have been made new creations. Help us to walk day by day in the reality that you've put us in. These things aren't hypothetical. For those of us here in Jesus, we are new creations. Lord, help us to walk around as if your resurrection is true. It's really true that sin is defeated. And Father, for anybody um, that is struggling just to believe this, Father, I pray that you would help them. Um, for anyone who's maybe never believed this even one time, Lord, I pray that now would be the moment when you just make yourself irresistible, break their hearts, Lord. Father, we love you, and as, as we come to take this meal of Christ again, uh, Father, I pray that the significance of it would not be lost on us, uh, the depth of your sacrifice, what it costs for, for you to be broken, not just in heart, but in body. Father, I pray that you would meet us at the table as your son serves us his grace once again. We love you, Lord. Help us to walk in the grace that you've given to us. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.